welcome to the Murdoch Mysteries podcast, where we watch the Murdoch Mysteries show and then chat about it after doing some um, light Googling. I'm Ivy. I'm Kalinda. And this week we watched episode four, Elementary, My Dear Murdoch, which obviously will feature something Sherlockian. Anywho, <laughs> Kalinda, um, how's it going? Good. Okay. Good talk. (laughs) (laughs) The banter here is unrivaled. That's what we're known for. Well, I I do think maybe we should get around to sometimes, like, I don't know, like... Checking in. Talking personally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Doing a check-in. My friend Jordan was telling me that she had a professor who used some weird terminology... A, a chin a chin wag yeah when they were gonna when they were gonna have a chat yeah. and she was really uncomfortable <laughs> she was like this <laughs> really weird i don't like it oh i like it yeah i thought that was funny uh yes so i yes i did the recap this week i'm gonna be going into details about all of the suspects and who the murderer was so spoilers ahead ready ready steady Sir Arthur Conan Doyle comes to town. He's heard a lot about Murdoch and wants to meet him, but has double-booked his meeting of Murdoch with a seance, a clairvoyant named Miss Sarah Pensall. At the seance, Murdoch is unconvinced, but Pensall says there is a young woman come to talk to them, buried in a shallow grave 20 paces off the road in the woods. Murdoch is skeptical, but Doyle convinces him to go, and they find the body! It's a woman from the Toronto Paranormal Society named Ida Winston, shot twice in the chest. Ida was one of the members of the society who inspected potential clairvoyants to see if they were true or frauds. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wants to follow around Murdoch during this investigation, and Brackenreed, clearly a fan of Doyle and the Sherlock series, happily consents. Murdoch isn't, like, thrilled about it, but yeah, so Doyle is present throughout the episode alongside Murdoch asking questions and sticking his nose everywhere. So top of the suspect list is Miss Pensall because she knew where exactly the body was. However, she's exonerated when we learn that uh, she found out about the body because she has a mole who collects information for her about her clients. And this mole saw a man carry a body out from the paranormal society and dump it in the woods. So Miss Pensall may be a fraud, but she's not guilty of murder. The next suspect is a man from the Paranormal Society named Mr. Waters. He was having an affair with Ida Winston, so they think he may have killed her in a fit of jealous rage. It also looks pretty bad for him since he spends most of his time at the Paranormal Society office where Ida was murdered. And he claimed that recently his gun went missing, though he never reported the theft. But before he can be exonerated, he is found dead at his desk, previously missing gun in hand, with a bullet to the head. Initially, it looks like suicide. However, we had just learned that he was left-handed and this gun was found in his right hand, so likely another murder. Next on the suspect list is Ida's husband, Mr. Winston, who frankly seems like a bit of an ass. (laughs) They- (laughs) He really does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, just awful. 
They think he may have killed his wife in a jealous rage, but Mr. Winston claims that Ida had agreed to end the affair and was coming back to him. So there's no motive there, and he's crossed off the suspect list. Finally, there's the members of the Toronto Paranormal Society. Since she was killed in the building, they're all suspects. Top of the list, though, is a man, Mr. Conrad Hunt. We met Hunt previously at the first seance that Murdoch attended, where he wanted to talk with his deceased son, James, but instead we got the tip on Ida's body. Hunt frequently goes to see Pensall and communicate with James, and there's the potential that if he knew Ida was going to expose the fraud in Pensall's practice, that he would lose his medium and his connection to his son. Murdoch gains Miss Pensall's help and devises a way to get Hunt to confess by having James threaten to leave because of the murders he's committed, and indeed, Hunt confesses. He murdered Ida so she wouldn't discredit Miss Pensall, and he murdered Mr. Waters to try to keep Murdoch off the scent. He's arrested, murderer caught, end of plot. Well done. Thanks. There is, of course, um, a side plot. Murdoch and all the seance stuff. Mm, yeah. The juicy bits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's not convinced at all about the clairvoyance, uh, but Sir Doyle is and has him go to um, another seance after they find the body to see if they can learn more. And at the seance, uh, Miss Pencil starts talking about a silver horse and a red dress and says that Liza has a message for Murdoch. Liza being Murdoch's deceased fiance. Murdoch freaks, calls her a fraud, and that's when they find the string and pulls the curtains and the man in the cupboard, Miss Pencil's mole. Uh, Murdoch initially writes it all off as fraudulent, but later when he's by himself, he remembers a time when him and Liza were alone together and happy, her in a red dress wearing a silver horse necklace. Uh, so suddenly he's quite, he's not quite so skeptical. And he ends up going to back to see Pensall by himself to try to talk to Liza again and hear her message. And he does. Uh, it's brief Liza telling him to let go of her and return to the living. And then she's gone. And then at the end of the episode, we see Murdoch ask Pensall if he could talk to Liza again. But she shakes her head and says that Liza has delivered her message and there's nothing more. So that's sort of the overall arc of, of that plot. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to add to that? Uh, no. But I actually feel like I watched mm -hmm. this episode so long ago I hardly remember it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> A long time ago, as in like four days ago. <laughs> yeah. I didn't rely on like my years ago <laughs> watching of it. <laughs> You rewatched it before we sat down yeah. to record, yes. Actually, I didn't even, I don't even think I watched this long ages ago. Like, when I say I'm, mm -hmm. like, rewatching things, all sort of, like, out of order or, like, you know, I would walk in on someone watching it kind of thing. So. Oh, right. I missed a huge chunk of season one. Yeah. So there's a couple little just fun bits also that happened. Mm-hmm. One is, is. A Dr. Ogden constantly trying to make jokes to Murdoch yep. um, to make him like crack a smile or something to quote unquote lift his spirits. Haha, <laughs> isn't that funny? And Murdoch just like, <laughs> he's so lame about it. <laughs> I like Ogden's like 
mystification of being like, these are good jokes. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. (laughs) Like, come on, that was funny. (laughs) And he's just not having it. He's all just, he's all brooding about Liza and, you know, wondering how real some of it is. And oh, and then there's also Bracken Reed wanting to tell Doyle. Mm -hmm. about the story of uh that he heard of like a dog attacking someone in the highlands and stuff yes wink (laughs) wink there's so he's sitting there like writing trying to write like potential titles that he can pitch (laughs) hellhound of the highlands I just thought it was it was so cute. Um, and I did do just like a quick Google search. And so The Hound of the Baskervilles came out like 1901 or 03 or something. Oh. So it did come out after this episode would have taken place. Yeah. Because I would have thought, I mean, because in the, in the show, the point is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has already sort of succeeded with Sherlock Holmes and now is trying to leave that to move on from that. And I always think of like Hounds of the Baskervilles as being like pretty pivotal or like it's kind of like as classic as as a study in Scarlet or whatever, right? Where yeah. it's one of the iconic ones. I wouldn't have thought that that would have come after his initial um abandonment of Holmes. I would have thought that would come before because it was such like a iconic one yeah it's funny it doesn't seem like he actually necessarily wrote that many stories about sherlock holmes before he like wanted to kill off sherlock and move on to quote-unquote like more prestigious stuff um <laughs> uh-huh. and so he did and then the hound of the baskervilles is meant to be like a story that took place prior Oh, that's that's sort of like it's supposed to, yeah, slide in chronologically in that way. But he does later actually um, do like a return of Sherlock and how it was like how he had faked his death and some things and writes more. Yeah. But really like wanted to move on to like more prestigious stuff because he viewed Sherlock as like, quote unquote, commercial. Yeah. Which is so funny. But I did a whole thing on on Doyle. So. You'll you'll hear a little more about it later. Not a not much, but a little more about him. I think also the thing about including any kind of reference to the Hound of the Baskervilles in this one, like I haven't read it, mm-hmm. but from what I think I know, is that it does have like an element of like spookiness on the moors and whatever. And so like yeah. bringing that into an episode that has to do with ghosts and spirits and stuff like that makes kind of a sense. Oh yeah, that is good. All right, so I think that's it for recap episode stuff. Ivy, you did some research. What did you research this week? So I'm glad you asked because I worked really hard on this. (laughs) Um, I did my research on spiritualism. Not too um, grandiose at all. (laughs) It's funny. I feel like I know a little bit about it. Because of a class I took in college. The problem is I can't remember which class it was. I think it was in one of my music history classes. 
Oh. Because there was some, like, composer who was big into spiritualism or the music of the spheres or, like, something. Okay, well, now that you mention it, I do, I can think of a couple of names that used music a bit. Maybe it's who you're talking about. Don't know. Okay. We'll see. So I, I, I vaguely remember a little bit, but I'm excited to learn more. Okay. I'm really excited. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so dumb because it's like history was my worst subject. And then I'm like, let me make a podcast where I have to write a history paper every week. (laughs) Oh my God, but same. I know. And it's always like, like I could talk about like the science stuff, which is what I thought I would do. But then I always get more interested, I feel like, in these like larger uh, socio-political kind of broader topics. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this one's really interesting. So, spiritualism. Before the 1840s, there were several social movements and historical figures that kind of set the stage for spiritualism. First of all, there was the Second Great Awakening. So these are all in America. The Second Great Awakening which was meant to revive mostly Protestant religious faith and was in full throttle by the 1820s. And then in 1836, transcendentalism began to flourish in New England, of which a major precept is that all of humanity and nature contains the divine. Put a little tag on that. Um, On top of this, it's no secret that early Victorians were already enthralled by ghost stories and the supernatural uncanny from, like, figures like Edgar Allan Poe, even A Christmas Carol is basically a ghost story, Dracula, Jack the Ripper. This was all, like, that century. So they're already kind of, like, constantly talking about ghosts. (laughs) Maybe not so much in America. Those were... (laughs) The last three were definitely British. Anyways, so going back even further than these movements I just mentioned, we start with a Swedish scientist and inventor of the 18th century named Emanuel Swedenborg, and he became interested in mysticism and theology later in life and believed he could commune with spirits. From these communications, he established two beliefs that would become foundational to the spiritualist movement. One that the afterlife consisted of many higher and lower heavens and hells, and two, that spirits were intermediaries between God and humans. So in addition to Swedenborg, a German named Franz Mesmer, who developed an early form of hypnotism he called animal magnetism, based on the theory of a natural energy transference between all animated and inanimate objects. So in many ways, this is like early pantheism in a way. Mm. At the time leading up to the spiritualist movement, an American named Andrew Jackson Davis, so this would be like, now we're we're up to like the 1830s. Those two mm-hmm. men came before. So now an American named Andrew Jackson Davis compounded the works of Swedenborg and Mesmer. He was himself a mesmerist and a self-proclaimed clairvoyant and introduced the showmanship and spectacle of mesmerism into spiritualism and purported to speak to ghosts while in a trance. So he's using hypnotism as a way to speak to ghosts or spirits. Oh. And yes, uh, the word mesmerized comes from Franz Mesmer. Yeah. So Davis claimed to speak to the ghost of Swedenborg, 
whose messages led Davis to his writings on what he called harmonial philosophy, which is based on his belief in a universal religion, that there is a truth that transcends all religions, and that once tapped could allow for peace and unity. And those who achieved this peace would be brought to the higher spheres of heaven upon death. He also asserted the novel idea that, quote, the soul could continue to progress in grace following death. So this was a big deal. Prior to this, the traditional view of the Christian faith was that a person could repent or pray or atone or be chosen or whatever for their sins and virtues in life. But if they were in the midst of sin or had not resolved their sins before death, then that would determine the fate of their soul for eternity. Um, whereas spiritualism was predicated on the new idea that the souls of the dead could continue to grow or change or evolve even after death. Oh. Not only that, but they could learn new information as spirits, communicate with the living, and this gave way to the belief that they could resolve their sins or grievances or what we usually hear today as unfinished business in popular media. Yes. In the show, we see a few examples of that, including the scene where Miss Pencil channels Liza and says that she knows Murdoch. So Liza is basically saying that she knows how Murdoch is doing. Yeah. Even after her death, that he's holding on to her and needs to move on. That's something Liza wouldn't have known before she died. So she's reacting to things that are happening after her death and forming her own opinion on it. Once the message is given, she has no more earthly business to finish. Mm -hmm. So even though we suppose the seance of James Hunt is a fabrication to get a confession, we also see this when Mrs. Pencil speaks to Conrad as his son. James says that things have changed between them and he has to go because of it. James knows what his father has done, even though he's dead, and he has determined they can no longer communicate, which also demonstrates the belief that spirits could judge the living and make personal decisions just as if they were alive. Mm -hmm. So the beliefs of spiritualism still influence our social perspective on death, especially in pop culture. I feel like I see this same belief system in TV all the time. Like, you know, there's always like, one episode where they're dealing with a clairvoyant and they leave a little bit a little bit of belief in there you know like just in like the last week I feel like Mm -hmm. two shows have done this Mm -hmm. that I've watched where you know it's like oh it doesn't end up helping them solve the murder or it doesn't like you know you don't have to believe it there's no physical evidence and yet you know how did they know about this thing. I don't know. (laughs) Other beliefs included that they had heavenly knowledge that the living did not, and that they could foretell the future, including knowledge of future like political events, things much on a bigger scale, and that they were more advanced spiritually and therefore authorities on ethical issues. Oh. One thing that I find really interesting is that the spiritualist movement was popular among members of other progressive movements. So the beginning of spiritualism is often set as April of 1848, which was when the Fox sisters began contact with a spirit in their house in Hydesville, New York. In 1848, Karl Marx also published the Communist Manifesto with his opening line, There is a specter haunting Europe. Also in 1848... 
the Declaration of Sentiments, written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was signed at the Seneca Falls Convention in New York, which was the first women's rights convention organized by women, many of whom were Quakers, including Lucretia Mott. In attendance was also Frederick Douglass. So, all converging at the same time, many abolitionists, socialists, and women's rights activists found the philosophy of spiritualism complementary to their own beliefs and goals. Many religious reformers coming out of the Second Great Awakening were disillusioned with larger churches because they were doing little to fight against slavery or for women's rights. Spiritualism was almost counterculturist because it supported individualist religious practice and eschewed traditional hierarchical structures of the time. It asserts that religious knowledge can be gained here and now with our own natural direct connection to the spirits and the divine rather than from an outdated text or watered-down doctrine. So much of this was already in accordance with Quakerism, which is one reason why Quakers were so involved in spiritualism. Quakers oh. believe in something called the inner light, which means that everybody already contains a perfect transcript of ultimate divine truth, and that one should look inside themselves to know the mind of God, rather than answering to, like, for example, the Catholic Church and the Pope, right? Yeah, I did not know this about Quakers. Yeah, Quakers are cool. So, in fact, a seance is organized very similarly to a classic Quaker meeting. In a Quaker meeting, everyone sits in a circle in silence, waiting for the spirit to take them. And if and when the spirit finds you, you may stand up and share something with the meeting. In addition to being very popular among women and gender equality advocates, women were also seen as being more ideal for clairvoyance. So I'm inferring here, this wasn't explicitly in my research, but I imagine this has similarities with another Victorian, more blatantly sexist archetype of the angel in the house, which was a picture of the ideal wife as a virtuous, selfless, and pious figure who would raise her children to be good Christians, and most importantly, would submit to and dote on her husband, no matter his sins, and even be his religious guide and moral compass, almost. Wow. So, the patriarchy is um, yeah. <laughs> here. Anyway, at this time, women were seen as having a better predisposition for spiritual perfectibility. That's a quote. I did not write that. Which lended itself to the idea of spiritualist mediumship. So one famous clairvoyant was an arrestingly beautiful woman named Cora L.V. Scott. Apparently, the contrast between her girlish beauty and her astute and eloquent musings on spiritualism only served to reinforce the idea that spirits were speaking through her. It's just more patriarchy. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what happens in a seance? So classic methods of contacting the spirit world at the time were things such as rapping, um, which is basically communicating through, like, knocking. Like, you would be, like, knock once for yes, twice for no kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Turning tables, Ouija boards... Automatic writing, which is basically like you're in a trance and you start writing. Materializations, levitations, uh, sealed letter writing, spirit photography, etc. 
spiritualist practices became more theatrical. Popular belief was that evidence that could be detected by sights and sounds and touch were the strongest proof of the paranormal. This materialist evidence was most sought after by Doyle, rather than, you know, what we see in Murdoch, which is that pencil may have may have more mental mediumship going on. Anyways, mm-hmm. I feel like we always hear about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle writing the most logical, scientific character of all time, and then just turning into a kook over spiritualism, and, like, we make fun of him for that. But many, many scientists and respected figures of the time were interested in studying spiritualism and with the belief of its plausibility. That includes Charles Dickens, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Mary Todd Lincoln, Queen Victoria, and even Nobel laureate Pierre Curie and his wife, Marie Curie. Am I saying that right? Marie Curie? Madame Curie. Mary yeah. Even though she was a little dubious. But they all attended seances and spiritualist gatherings. It was considered a viable scientific pursuit. After the death of Prince Albert, a medium spoke to Queen Victoria, claiming to be in contact with him, and used his pet name for her that only they knew. And then after her daughter's death, Queen Victoria's daughter's death, she regularly consulted a medium to contact her daughter. Thomas Edison hoped to invent a spirit phone to enable contact with the other side. Oh my gosh. Mary Todd Lincoln, first lady, regularly held seances in the White House after the death of her son, to which President Lincoln would have attended. Whoa. Spiritualism surged after both the American Civil War and the First World War. Due to the development of photography, many people knew from photos that their loved ones lost in these wars died horribly and had a lot of anxiety about their deaths. Stage magicians like Harry Houdini often exposed spiritualist frauds, and by 1882, the Society for Psychical Research was founded in London to prove or disprove the claims of spiritualists and the existence of spirits. They quickly began exposing frauds. The religious practice of spiritualism still exists today. It has largely done away with the materializing mediumship and theatrical demonstrations of the Victorian era and focus more on mental mediumship. Because I feel like largely today, if we went to a psychic and then like we started hearing banging and wind, we would be like, this is a hoax. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, if they knew something about us, that would be more convincing. Yeah. But at the time, it was the opposite. Anyways, so if you're into learning Mm. more about spiritualism, there's a whole season of the Unobscured podcast that does a deep dive into the movement. And if you just like it as a genre, you might be interested in a show called Detective Anna, which I saw on Amazon. It's a Russian drama set in about the same time as Murdoch Mysteries, but features a girl who uses clairvoyance to solve crimes. That's so cool. I haven't watched all of it, and it has one or two, like, questionable perspectives on justice and policing, because, I mean, it's, you know, but it's a big vibe. It's got ghosts, and it's, there's romance, and the costumes are really great, and obviously, like, even though it's just, like, not even, like, that picturesque of a landscape, it's still, like, ooh, snowy woods of Russia still gets you, (laughs) even though it's probably just because I've never been to Russia. That sounds that sounds great. Yeah, so I've seen a few of it, and I 
I do think it's pretty good. Like, it's worth a watch if you're into that kind of genre and vibe. And that's me and scene. Okay, so so tell me about yours. Yes, I will. F- what first though, I had one thing that I realized I forgot to mention earlier about the episode mm-hmm. that was just a funny fourth wall break. Oh yeah. <laughs> Doyle talking about forensics and how that was going to be like, ooh, people are going to be so into that. That's going to be all an entertainment. People are going to be fascinated by this. People are going to love it. Right. And Murdoch is, of course, like, forensics? Yeah. That sounds far too morbid, dull and boring. <laughs> Just yet another look at camera where you go, Murdoch, why'd you have to call me out? Right. Like when the screen goes dark at the end of a movie that you've been watching on your laptop and you see your own reflection and you go... <laughs> Oi, <laughs> why you got to do that to me right now? <laughs> yeah, and what I also didn't say, um, I meant to mention the the musical influence that you might have that might have connected to your class. Yeah. So Franz Mesmer as a German. Yeah, I think it was. That sounds right. Yeah, he was really into using music for his hypnotism. He would often use music to bring people out of trances and also he was good friends with like Mozart and probably some other guy that I don't remember his name like like (laughs) I was not I didn't copy it down I just read briefly over it but he did know them and so he was a music fan and I think actually Mozart even made a joke about him like some reference to him in Cozy Fan 2D oh whoa um, but not only that, I think there was this other guy who basically created, like, a bunch of instruments for ghosts to play, for the spirits oh. to play. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I didn't I don't look think... into that one, but um, I think there was some occasion for that. Wow. I don't recall that, but that's cool. Yeah, I think it was when you started mentioning mesmer and mesmerism, I was like, oh, yeah, I think that was, I think that was it. Mm-hmm. That was what sounded familiar. Yes. So, for my research, I did Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. Wow, what a name. Uh, I know. That, wow. I mean, wow. already Conan Doyle is like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's too long. Why is he called Conan Doyle? Like, why can't we just... So, interesting. Doyle? interestingly, Conan is a middle name. Oh, But he's tacked it on in such a way and for a while was like using it. I think, like, in place of a surname and some different things that it actually, like, a lot of people refer to it or think of it as a surname, but technically it's one of his middle names. I mean, cool, dude. (laughs) I'm, like, I'm, like, annoyed (laughs) that he did that, but also it's, like, whatever. (laughs) Whatever, fine. Fail at branding, my dude. More power to you. But also he's perfectly fine on branding, like, everyone knows who he is, (laughs) so... (laughs) <laughs> it's honestly kind of fascinating like looking looking at overall his life there are multiple times where he really like tried different things and just d- it didn't work like with his name or like with a profession or no with with his whole life it just seems like something something in one of the um biographies that I was reading was just talking about how as a person he was kind of restless mm. 
So he tried lots of different things and he did traveling and stuff. And so he was, obviously, we saw in the episode that he was previously a doctor. Mm -hmm. Yes. He went to medical school. He actually went to the University of Edinburgh and went to school with Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh huh. Uh, which I thought was just so fun and cool. And they had like one of the same teachers. Um, one of his teachers in medical school, Dr. Joseph Bell, is said to be the inspiration for Sherlock. Oh, I thought you were going to say for <laughs> Dr. Jekyll. Um, oh, no, no, but that makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but that Robert Louis Stevenson read Sherlock and then mentioned how he's like, is this our Joe Bell? <laughs> Right? About how, how it reminded him of him. Aw, cute. Which I thought was funny. Yeah. So, yes. Um. So, a little bit about his life. He was born May 22nd, 1859 in Edinburgh, Scotland. He went to a Jesuit boarding school in England and absolutely hated it. You know, of course, because it was all corporeal punishment and just didn't, didn't sound like a fun time. No, I'm pretty sure all boarding schools before this century were probably pretty bad. Yeah, really, just, ugh. Uh, he was close with his mother, um, and they wrote letters really frequently, particularly when he was in school, but he was not close with his father. His dad was an alcoholic for most of his life and um, was later put into an asylum. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yes, doctor, got his degree. His degree was a... Bachelor of Medicine and Master of Surgery, which I just thought was such a, a funny, a fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. It sounds kind of like, like, what does it sound like? Like Pokemon or superheroes or something. <laughs> like, like, what a, what a degree. What, yeah, like, like, it's like, kind of arbitrary. <laughs> what? Yeah, those aren't two degrees. That's one that is Bachelor of Medicine and Master of Surgery. Right. It's like, those should be separate. One should mean something or this is just a arbitrary joke <laughs> yeah <laughs> so when he graduated he briefly shared a practice with another doctor that apparently just like went really badly and he sort of ended up bankrupt mm. and had it says that he had 10 pounds to his name um which is like a thousand pounds or something now in today's money when he finally left and started his own practice mm -hmm. and when he started his own practice that went better it was you know stable enough and i think around that same time he was also writing starting to write stories and so this is around um or 1885 mm -hmm. and it was in august of 1885 that he married his first wife louisa hawkins who was a sister of one of his patients and they had two kids together um and she ended up getting sick with i believe tuberculosis uh later in life so in 1886, he started writing a story called A Tangled Skein. Tangled Skin? No, Skein. Or Skein. I can't remember. <laughs> Something like that. A Tangled Skein with characters Sheridan Hope and Ormond Sacker. And then he rewrote it later, and two years later, that became A Study in Scarlet with Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Mm. So that was the first... Sherlock that he wrote and even I think when he published it he then later came out with another novel that he was more proud of and different things and he viewed Sherlock as being 
like commercial, like I said earlier. Right. And what he wanted to create was, quote unquote, serious historical novels, poems, and plays. That's random collection. (laughs) Historical. Do you think historical should also be describing the poetry and the plays? I don't know. Or if it's just historical novels and then poems and plays. Well, the other thing is that historical novels had only just, like, been invented. Like, he started doing some nonfiction stuff. Uh, oh. That went pretty well. He also wrote, like, he wrote something that was called The Lost World or something, or A Lost World, that was sci-fi before sci-fi was really a thing because it took place somewhere in South America on this plateau where there were a bunch of prehistoric dinosaurs that had survived. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, so just because I just double-checked what I said. Mm-hmm. Just a little fun fact. No relevancy, really, honestly. Um, but the first, or like what is considered one of the first uh, historical novel, as in like it's a novel about a time prior to the one in which it was written, mm-hmm. uh, is called Waverly. And it's by Sir Walter Scott. And that one came out in 1814. Wow. And it was only about like 60 years prior to when it was written. So they didn't Mm -hmm. go like far back. But just a cool little fun fact. So he was jumping on a kind of a new genre for the time, really. That's cool. I think so. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Yeah. So another fun, another kind of fun fact um, was that he was better known at that time for those early Sherlock stories. He was better known in the U.S. than in England. Typical. And there was an editor from Philadelphia's Lippincott's Monthly Magazine uh, that wanted to set up, like, a British version and had sort of, like, a dinner with him and also invited Oscar Wilde. And so he met Oscar Wilde like at a dinner oh my and God, apparently dope. like they got along really well <laughs> of course they did oh my god well i don't i'm not even a fan of doyle i'm just like i love oscar wilde <laughs> so it's like how do you not like him oh my gosh one thing of so one thing that they that they said about him was that even in dress up clothes he looked like a walrus mm-hmm. um and i just savage That's like, <laughs> i know <laughs> Just dragged. <laughs> well, and I saw a photo of him, and it was funny. Like, they did a great job with their casting for the episode, it seemed like. Um, and especially even just, like, that mustache that he has mm. is so is so iconic. Like, all the photos that you see of Doyle, he has that, like, big... Bushy. Yeah, with the sort of curl, with, like, a slight curl at the end. Big old mustache. Mm-hmm. So... I, that, that was also making me think of the walrus, like um, Alice in Wonderland walrus or whatever. Oh, the mustache yeah. and stuff. <laughs> that, was, that was what it made me think of, too, when they, when they said that. <laughs> Gosh, you know what's so bananas about this? I mean, what's always going to be true as we keep going, but especially this week, I feel like we're hitting this part where it's like everyone knows everyone. Like, oh, he met Oscar Wilde. Oh, you yeah. know, like... He he went to school with Robert Louis Stevenson. And then, like, on top of that, didn't, like... Maybe I've gone too far back. <laughs> but mm. it's, like, all happening at the same time where it's, like, even... This one's a bit of a reach. 
Jack the Ripper and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm -hmm. And those are all like intertwined at the same time as well. And like Dickens also being involved in spiritualism and them all like, I don't know. I mean, you mentioned Houdini. Yeah. But he actually met Houdini. He met Houdini and Houdini did these magic tricks for him and called them illusions, right? Like actually sort of showed his hand about how like these are illusions and yet Doyle was like convinced that he had some supernatural powers even though he was telling him that it was an illusion. Like, Oh no. (laughs) I thought was so freaking funny. Yeah, that doesn't look good for him. (laughs) No, it's not really a great look. (laughs) Um. But yeah, so for for a lot of his life, he was real into spiritualism, which, like, I don't think I really necessarily knew about Doyle. Um, Mm -hmm. And something else. So this is another thing where, for whatever reason, why? 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 Why is this a fact about your life? He joined the Freemasons not once but twice. Because he left them twice. (laughs) Oh, my God. He He joined the Freemasons and then left a couple years later. And then joined again and then left again (laughs) like and i don't know how much is necessarily that he like left a particular church kind of thing like i don't know how freemasons work a particular i want to hear the hot goss behind that like i feel like that's rivalry i feel like that is like mm, i fell in love with someone and then like in the freemasons and then we fell out of love oh man then i had to leave like i'm writing this but i feel like there's some (laughs) high drama there (laughs) Yeah, there's some. Yeah, there's something. I don't know. It was, but that was interesting. Make it a movie. <laughs> he also tried to run for parliament not once but twice, both unsuccessful. Right. Mm-hmm. He had he had that business where he went bankrupt. So so mm. he so he gets a business later, right? And it it works better. But later he decides that he wants to study ophthalmology. Okay. Um. <laughs> So he so he goes and he wants to study that. So he goes to Vienna, but his like his German is poor or whatever. The, there's language problems. He ends up coming back. I don't know if he ends up with a degree or not. I don't remember, but it just didn't go very well. And then when he comes back, he tries to open a practice again, and that one he doesn't get a single patient. Oh, yikes. Yeah. And I don't know if it's necessarily because, like, he moved to a different place or whatever, but just for whatever reason, like, not a single patient even, like, shows up once. <laughs> it's like, ouch. So so later then, in 1891, he was struck with influenza and on death's door. And it was then that he decided to fully give up on his medical career and double down on literature. So before mm-hmm. he was kind of trying to do both at the same time. That was when he decided to really double down and just do the writing thing. And mm-hmm. then it Be was... Be commercial. Yeah. And it was actually, honestly, about then, though, that he decided also he was going to, like, kill off Sherlock because he was done. Mm. And so that was the, the Reichenbach Falls where right. they plunged to their jets over the waterfall and was going to, like, now be all serious and do, you know, the serious stuff. Um, but I also don't think that necessarily went, I mean, like he has some success with it later because in in 1900, he volunteered for the Second Boer War. Boer War? Yeah. Um, which I don't think I had even known about 
like I didn't really know about this war that happened because I'm all, you know, American over here, not knowing what <laughs> England's up to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming from the way that you said that you'd heard of it. Well, I've heard of it. I don't fully understand it. And I think I probably know more about the first one, not the second mm. one. But yeah, just that it's like, that's a British problem. <laughs> yeah. We know nothing about it. Yeah. They went to war in South Africa over like diamonds and gold, essentially. Yeah. It was kind of a nightmare. Like, I think yeah. what I recall about it is that it was very like shady. Mm-hmm. So at the time, he wanted to volunteer to be a soldier, but he was like 40 and overweight. And they were like, no. <laughs> They were like, we don't Damn. want you. Like everything is, everything sucks for him. <laughs> like, on it, like it's so funny. Like his first wife dies. He, you know, um, falls in love though and has a second wife with more children. And so like there, there is good stuff that goes on. He's apparently pretty good at some different sports and things, some cricket and some golf. And um, mm. so he, yeah, he, he tries to volunteer for this war as a soldier. It doesn't work. So instead he volunteers as a doctor. That makes way more sense. I know, because he has a freaking medical degree. So I think it's really funny that, like, but he really, like, he was like, this is my last chance to, you know, like, prove myself and be a man. And his whole family's like, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he he goes and he ends up writing a 500-page chronicle called, like, The Great Boer War about the war um, and the shortcomings mm-hmm. of the British and all of the stuff that happened. And then sort of like once it's over, and then in 1902, King Edward VII knights him for his services rendered to the crown during the war, and probably also for that yeah. book that he wrote. So like, mm-hmm. and that's some no- nice historical serious stuff that he's written that he probably, you know, feels pretty good about. And it did give him a knighthood, which is right. cool. But it's funny that like, we mostly know him for Sherlock, which is something that he just like did because of the money and stuff and like tried to get them to (laughs) he tried to get them to not want to take sherlock by raising the price and then they were just like no we're willing to pay that and he was like fine (laughs) it's kind of funny because like i feel like this might have just been this one show i watched where Mm -hmm. they phrased it as because they were it was a murder mystery i watched tons of murder mysteries Mm -hmm. and they were at like this writing convention and author died or whatever and he wrote murder mysteries Mm -hmm. and so they say he did a christie like this is said sort of offhand and i think that they don't really know what it means but then it's the linchpin of like solving the murder point is this author wanted to drop his character because he was sick of writing him so they call it or in in the show, at least, if this is like a real turn of phrase, I'm not sure. But it makes perfect sense if it were. Because the same thing happens to so many authors where they get sick of their characters, yeah. especially murder mystery authors. So like Christie, Agatha Christie, got really sick of writing um, Hercule Poirot. Oh. And honestly, it totally makes sense because Poirot is kind of insufferable. Like, of all the... Because <laughs> just he's so... He's so pompous. He's so annoying and, and troublesome. But everyone around him is like, oh, it's his charm. And I'm like, that's not charming. That's annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, he's not as fun to watch. Like, I would prefer Miss Marbles. Miss Marbles? Miss Marple. Yeah. <laughs> I was channeling something else there. But it happens to... 
a lot of authors. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty common mm-hmm. for that to happen. But we could also say like Donna Doyle. Yeah. Pulled a Doyle. <laughs> so that's pretty much it for his history. He Yes. So as you were saying earlier, he really got into spiritualism for, for a lot of his life. He was interested, um, but particularly toward the end of his life, he he wrote fewer novels and seemed to give more talks about spiritualism through the 1920s mm-hmm. and then died in 1930 at the age of 71. Wow. Fun fact, he did a series of talks in the U.S. in over 30 cities at the end of 1894, September to December. So right at this time. Yeah. So right around the time of the show, he was supposedly in the U.S. giving talks about spiritualism. Mm-hmm. And that was what he was there doing in Toronto in the show, which I thought was so cool. Yeah. It's like right on. They got it just right. So um, so something I've actually been like waiting for this episode to say mm-hmm. um, is about Sherlock Holmes. And so a little while ago, I was watching this like three part like documentary about British murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It's called A Very British Murder with Lucy Worsley. And I've only seen a couple other of her things, but she's really good. Um, I want to watch more of her stuff. But anyways, in it, she goes over like the whole history, obviously pertaining mostly to Britain, but the whole history of like the advent of investigative detective work and public interest in crime and then how that feeds into fiction and how both true crime and fictional crime have influenced each other over time. It's really fascinating. But there's this part in it where she's specifically talking about Sherlock Holmes because how could you not? Like, she's talking about so many things, including, like, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and, like, real-life crime and and also, like, Sherlock Holmes fictional crime and how police investigated crime. So Sherlock Holmes was a big deal at this time because, um, as Lucy Worsley phrases it, his scientific approach to the crime scene, the idea of reading minute forensic clues, was genuinely pioneering and it would actually inspire real-life policing. So before then, people weren't looking, you know, for like hairs and bits of dust, right? Mm-hmm. they were looking at larger elements and mostly relying on interviewing. Whereas Sherlock Holmes is an example of fiction actually setting the stage for real-life policing rather than the other way around, right? That's so cool. I know. That blew my mind. Yeah, and it's cool to think that like that was inspired by a real-life doctor as well. Ooh, Yeah. You know, who had those observations and those deductive skills and, like, some knowledge of forensics, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But the fact that it was then put into stories, which could carry so much wider, probably also meant that it helped set the stage for it. Even though, like, Mm -hmm. people were doing it locally, but on a whole, that's cool. Yeah. Also, I would totally recommend the whole three-part documentary. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating. So Conan Doyle wrote 56 short stories and four novels about Sherlock Holmes. 
novels. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that makes sense. I just, I forgot that they're full-length novels. <laughs> well, I guess it's funny. I sort of more thought of all of them as novels, but because of the way yeah. a lot of them were serialized in magazines, I don't know if those count necessarily as the novels, more as the short stories. Yeah, to me, I read one or two in class, and they were short stories. But then I guess if I hadn't read those, then I would immediately assume that they were all novels. But it just seems to me what's, it's kind of weird to think about, like, once you say it, that makes total sense. Mm. Because um, the short stories aren't, like, enough. If Sherlock Holmes was only based on a series of short stories, I feel like you wouldn't get enough of, like, investment in who he is right Mm, sure maybe well i i honestly am not like a big sherlock holmes fan so maybe that's just me another fun fact i've never read any of them (laughs) is that your fun fact yes (laughs) watched a lot of sherlock stuff watched so much (laughs) it's funny that like i feel like the the bbc sherlock is where i first got a lot of the understanding of like at least titles of Sherlock stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's funny that I think of the Reichenbach fall and then I suddenly realized that it's literally a waterfall from one of right. the stories. And I was like, oh my God, I feel so dumb. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just funny. Like I would not have known A Study in Scarlet was the name of a Sherlock Holmes story except for the fact that it was the title of episode one of the BBC Sherlock, which is so funny, even though it's not necessarily what I would think of as the best interpretation of Sherlock by any means. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the one that I know a lot of the titles from. So it was funny then like reading the biography and going like, oh, huh, okay. Yeah, I would say, I guess I probably started there as well, but I never like... I think I watched maybe definitely season one and then into season two and then I kind of gave up. Oh, good. But that was definitely like our, it was popular amongst our circle, I feel like, you know? Yes. Like dramatically popular. Whereas actually, then there were the movies, like the Robert Downey Jr. Jude Law movies. Yes. And I like those a lot, mostly because of the music, have to say. (laughs) That yeah. soundtrack is really good. and um, But I would actually say the best, like, is Elementary. Elementary oh, yeah. is really good. Oh, yeah, it is. It is very and good. And Lucy Liu, most beautiful woman in the world, like, mm-hmm. hands down. It's got a bit of that Western television vibe. Yeah, definitely. Which, which I'm not, which I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, and for a while really threw me off Elementary. Mm-hmm. But it's always, always so good. Every episode I saw, I was like, this is, this is some good stuff. Yeah, I would say also in general, like, I wouldn't normally go for that Western procedural style. and no. But that it just was so strong. Yeah. And it, I loved the dynamic between that she was his um, sponsor or whatever. What mm-hmm. did they call Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, like, that dynamic there, that it's such, a, like, like, a good device. I mean, it's, you know, that it's a bond that they yes. have. And... And it makes so much sense, especially to, like, really highlight that Sherlock was kind of an addict, right? Yeah. That like, And make that actually part of his his character growth and everything and what affects him and what doesn't, right? Yeah. It's, it's so good. The only other Sherlock I know of is, like, an, a real old interpretation. 
Mm-hmm. It's very, you know, BBC murder mystery style, but that is also very good. Like, is it a, a classic retelling period? Yeah. Appropriate attire kind of thing? Yeah. With like a guy that looks like, so there is a, there is a drawing that someone did, maybe a woman, I don't remember, of Sherlock Holmes to go with some of the serials that he did, that mm-hmm. Doyle did. And that image is like iconic Sherlock to me. And mm-hmm. like, it looks as if they took that image and then cast someone based <laughs> yeah. off of that image. Like that's, that's kind of what that old initial um british yeah that yeah that old british sherlock holmes looks like all right so that's it that's that was that was all of my research i had i don't have any other tidbits no other fun facts did you look anything else up no (laughs) i just kind of like went really hard on spiritualism and then is that it are we done did we do it i think we did it we've gotten through yet one more episode Yep, and next week we will be back on episode five, Till Death Do Us Part, or Till Death Do We Part. Damn, I should have written that down. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> wow, perfect. Yeah, check us out on uh, Twitter, Instagram. We're on Apple now. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one. <laughs>